Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It's a pleasure and an honor to welcome Sally Patchlock, RN, BSN Today. She is the co-author of a blockbuster book that you all must buy and read called Could It Be B12? An Epidemic of Misdiagnosis, the underground classic that has saved lives. It's out in its second edition. You are going to be shocked at how B12 deficiency is impacting a myriad of symptoms, diseases, and how quickly and efficiently and cheaply these diseases and symptoms could be taken out of our lives. You will not believe what you hear. Sally is an RN who has been an emergency nurse, worked at the ER for many, many years, along with her husband. She is going to talk to us today about why it is that most of us should be tested for B12 deficiency, the complexities of B12 metabolism, how it is that most doctors and hospitals that should be testing for it don't and are not necessarily receptive to this new knowledge. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Sally Patchlock to its rainmaking time. Good morning. Thank you for having me. The first thing I want you to lay out for us is why is it that B12 is not utilized more prevalently in our supplementation and diets? The problem regarding B12 deficiency amongst physicians and healthcare institutions is there is a knowledge deficit. Um, There's poor or absent screening in symptomatic and at-risk patients. Our current range for what a normal serum B12 level extends far too low. And there are a lack of other sensitive tests to aid in diagnosis when indicated. And most clinicians, they're waiting for enlarged red blood cells or macrocytic anemia to to be present, which does not need to be present to think of B12 deficiency. And elderly are frequently misdiagnosed due to increased incidence of their pre-existing diseases and comorbid conditions. Um, we're miserly with B12 treatment. We have poor protocols, substandard care, and we're, most physicians are treating a lab report versus the patient. We're diagnosing patients late, following old guidelines, and we have incomplete information. So the number one reason is there is a knowledge deficit in the medical and healthcare community regarding B12 deficiency, which is absurd because this disorder has been known for over a century. In 1934, we won the Nobel Prize in Medicine for the discovery of, uh, B12, of vitamin B12 to cure pernicious anemia or B12 deficiency. Why, you know, seven decades later we're failing and actually injuring people has to stop. And that's exactly why I wrote the book in 2005 and we updated the edition in 2011. How did you, as an emergency nurse, become interested in this subject? Well, long story, I've been practicing emergency nursing now for 24 years, but I've worked in the emergency room actually for 28 years. I was a a paramedic at first. While I was going to nursing school, I was lucky that I was actually macrocytic, meaning I had enlarged red blood cells, but I was never anemic. Long story short, I turned out that I have a B12 deficiency And there's several reasons why you can have a B12 deficiency, but the particular type that I have is called autoimmune pernicious anemia. And I was so young when I had it, I was like 20, 
they actually call it juvenile autoimmune pernicious anemia. But when I would show physicians my blood work, they'd say, ah, don't worry about it, you know, eat more vegetables because you can have enlarged blood cells, red blood cells, if you have a folic acid deficiency or B12. Folic acid is all in the vegetables, fruits, grains. B12 is in animal products. So they were wrong with that. But as time went on, I really didn't have severe symptoms. I was tired, but I was going to college and working. But when I had a surgery, I had told one of the physicians that the surgeon that I had, um, oh, let me back up. I had one of the physicians actually test me because when I had a, a lab book that described how you diagnose different macrocytic problems, he did do particular tests. I did a Schillings test back in the day. They did a serum B12, and I was very deficient. So he told me that you have a B12 deficiency. My grandfather had pernicious anemia, almost died in the 1960s from it, and so I was on B12. Two years later, I had to have a surgery, and I told my surgeon that I had uh, pernicious anemia, and she said that that can't be. Have you ever seen a hematologist, a blood specialist? I said, no. Sent me on my way. This was like 1985, 86. And this hematologist spent a lot of time with me, did a whole bunch of tests on me, and told me that there's no way that you have pernicious anemia. You're way too young, that clinically you don't have it, da-da-da-da. And so I argued with them, and so he said, fine, I'm going to do all these tests on you to prove that you do not have this. You need to stop taking your B12 injections because you don't need them. Well, sure enough, 10 days later I get a call. They want to see me in the office. He was going to call me and give me my results over the phone. So I went in there, and lo and behold, I took my chart off the door back in the 80s. They used to put the charts on the door. Right. I had my history, what he wrote about me, and he made me sound like I was some kind of a, you know, hysterical young female or I was, that I was imagining things I didn't have. He comes in, takes the chart out of my hands and says, oh, my goodness, like, you know, you are the youngest person I've ever seen with B12 deficiency. And that kind of, you know, he really took interest and started, you know, palpating my liver and my spleen and really looking at me and... I remember leaving that day thinking, like, if I wouldn't have argued with him, and I thought, how could he have missed such an easy diagnosis? I mean, he had the blood work in, in front of him. And when I went to see him, I was already on B12 injections for two years. So he completely dismissed the signs, the symptoms, my history, the risk factors, et cetera. And so that led, this long story, led me into curiosity of how many other people is this happening to? But at the same time, I was working in the emergency room. So when I was and I was going back to school for more nursing classes, getting my bachelor's degree, when I would see patients coming in that were symptomatic of B12 deficiency, I would try to educate my colleagues, et cetera, and they would laugh and go, ah, B12 deficiency, have them go take a pill, and they'd kind of roll their eyes. Nobody would test the patient. And it wasn't just emergency uh, personnel. It was their internists, general practitioners, specialists, because people come into the emergency room and... You know, when we work in the emergency room, we have the greatest opportunity to witness the frequent misdiagnosis because we are caring for many other physicians' patients, and we see a greater volume and wider variety of patients than any other, you know, doctor and nurse. And we're not limited to a specific group of patients regarding to disease, body system, age, or sex, as are other health care providers. So when I would see this, that's what led me to be very frustrated we know that B12 deficiency is very common in older adults over the age of 60. And what was really getting me was that these patients had 
many symptoms of B12 deficiency or had, and had risk factors. And when I would go to them and, like, see, did anybody, you know, we'd go through the computer, look if they've ever been tested. They never were tested or screened for it. And then you'd ask the physician or their other specialists that would come down the right orders if they're being admitted, and they, wouldn't, they would not test them. So twofold, I had the disease process which really made me dive into what B12 deficiency pernicious anemia was, and I realized it doesn't just happen to older adults. And then my frustration as a healthcare professional working in the field witnessing the the group that they felt it was very predominant in, they refused to test, let alone any other age that was symptomatic. So the combination of knowing so much about B12 deficiency to protect my own self and even my previous experience where I had a seasoned hematologist tell me that you didn't have it where he was completely mistaken and then finding supporting articles that this does happen to younger people and then seeing, witnessing where they won't test people led to this, this huge frustration and feeling I had to do something for the people, I decided to write a book to help protect the public, inform the public, and protect themselves and to become informed and get tested. And that's where this kind of all began. Apparently, the doctors that have read your book are so impressed with the massive amounts of research and factual information and the relational information. I'm telling you, it's one of the most comprehensive whole systems approaches to understanding the role of B12. The way that you've written the book is really great, I have to tell you. Really? I think the reason I kind of wrote it that way, I always feel like I've, I mean, for 20 years, (laughs) I've been advocating and trying to educate people about B12 deficiency, and I kind of feel like I had to actually write like an attorney, like to write it like I had to defend what I'm saying. So it's backed up with hundreds of, these are medical articles from scientific journals that are respected. I mean, this information is out there. It's kind of I gathered everything and wrote about the disease that we all should know about and then given references to back up. I'm not making this up. It's not just what I'm seeing in my own practice. There are cases, the reason, let's, let's back up so your viewers will understand this part, is that the reason why it's so important to diagnose B12 deficiency early is because if you don't, you can cause neurologic injury that can be permanent. You need vitamin B12 for the myelin, and the myelin is the fatty protective coating that lines our brain and our spinal cord and the nerves. So if you have a B12 deficiency that goes undetected and untreated, you can damage the myelin. And what that causes is you can get neuropathy, like numbness and tingling, prickling sensations to your extremities, your feet, your hands, your legs, It can be in your trunk. And as this progresses, it can cause balance and gait problems. So if you have this neuropathy and balance problems, it causes dizziness. It causes mental status changes, forgetfulness, kind of foggy thinking. It can actually go up to, like, dementia. But when you look at all these signs and symptoms of what it does to the nerves, especially in elderly people, healthcare providers think, well, that's just a normal part of aging. You should be falling. You should be kind of, you know, getting forgetful, uh, have some numbness or tingling. And what this B12 deficiency does, it frequently causes falls, fall-related trauma. Fall-related trauma is one of the number one causes of death in people over the age of 65. So it's very important that we screen patients. In fact, it's, it's just, it kind of, to me, doesn't even make sense. So not only is this like a... Um, 
we need to do this for people to keep them living and for their health, in the same token, we are wasting billions of healthcare dollars by not addressing B12 deficiency or treating. I love that you laid it out, what you just said also in the book. It doesn't pay to ignore this. It doesn't pay in the system. It doesn't pay with patients. Not tending to it degrades everybody and the entire system. It does. And, And the frustrating part is that, you know, a lot of disorders or diseases, they don't have a cure. This does. Not only does it have a cure, but it can be prevented in some, in some groups by proper and, and screening. You know, so it, it's kind of like we're not saying, I mean, I think that there are certain groups that should be screened, but absolutely if you have signs and symptoms, you have to be tested. And for them to, you know, it's negligence and it is malpractice. For, for your viewers to really understand, I think a lot of physicians and healthcare institutions, they think of B12 like, ah, oh, it's a vitamin, go, just go take one, and they think it's very simplistic. They have to realize that, you know, the B12 is one of the 13 vitamins our body needs for health and life. If you do not have B12, if we were to take out your stomach and wipe out your B12 completely, in years you'll eventually die, okay? And everybody's different because it depends on your body stores. But that's what pernicious anemia, pernicious means deadly anemia. Eventually a B, uh, B12 deficiency will lead to death because you need it to live. So we're missing the importance of B12. You say that B12 has kind of its own metabolism, if you will, and it requires gastric acid. And therefore, vegetarians are at risk of B12 deficiency, and so are people with autoimmune diseases like Hashimoto, etc. I'm almost vegetarian. I eat some meat and some fish, but it's not much. I also have to take thyroid. But vegetarians will say, well, look, I get folic acid from eating a lot of salad and a lot of vegetables and everything. And then you say that folic acid can mask a B12 deficiency. Can you explain some of this for us? Yeah, folic acid is a B vitamin, so is B12. There's like several B vitamins, but B12 is completely different than folic acid, different than B1, thiamine, B2, B6, okay? There's a whole bunch of different B vitamins. You can't compare B12 to folic acid because they're totally two different vitamins or substances that our body needs for health and for life, okay? Totally two different things. B12 is only found in animal products, which is meat, organs, meat, shellfish, fish, eggs, milk, cheese. Folic acid is only found in grains and uh, vegetables, fruits, vegetables. So they come from two different sources. The, major, the number one reason people have a B12 deficiency is, is typically not from their diet, but from a malabsorption problem. And many people have different malabsorption problems for a variety of reasons. B12 of all the vitamins is the most complicated vitamin. It just doesn't go through passive diffusion like the other vitamins. It has to follow a chain of events for proper absorption. You have to have a healthy stomach, which secretes hydrochloric acid, an intrinsic factor, your pancreas has to be working, and the last step, which is critical and essential, is the ileum, which is the last part of the small intestine that has receptors that bind with the intrinsic factor and then converts it to go through the body for your body to be able to utilize it. So if you have a surgery or disease of the stomach, 
or of the small intestine, you're going to have a B12 deficiency. The problem where vegans and vegetarians get problems with is that they have lower stores because they're not taking in the food. You, B12 you don't make in your body. You have to take in the food. So the people who don't have a malabsorption problem, if they are strict vegans, they're going to get a B12 deficiency over time. We have found many vegetarians who do take little you know, B12 of fish or little parts. Their, their levels are lower, okay? And in time, say if they're a practicing vegetarian for 20, 25 years and they're not supplementing properly, they're going to become B12 deficient. Now, what creates the deficiency to come on sooner is that if they have a risk factor, for instance, say they take a drug that can deplete your B12 stores or they were given an anesthetic, there's one called nitrous oxide. Nitrous oxide is like laughing gas and they use it, dentists use it a lot, but they also use it in regular surgeries. That inactivates B12 in your body. Um, there are drugs for diabetes called metformin or glucophage. They know over time it, it does something to the ileal receptors that people become B12 deficient from it. Um, proton pump inhibitors like Prevacid, Prilosec, Omeprazole, those are drugs used to suppress stomach acid to treat ulcers, gastric reflux disease, um, and, and, and physicians prescribe those like candy. So you create a achlorhydric or no acid environment in the stomach, which decreases your chances of absorbing B12 properly. So the biggest problem vegans and vegetarians get into trouble with is they have this history of being that for, and not saying that vegetarian diet is good, but you just have to, you, and you can supplement with over-the-counter supplements like sublingual B12. So they can still do that. But the problem is they're taking not enough B12 for health. And the big problem they have is when they are, the women who are pregnant and have children, their stores are lower than most if they're not supplementing properly. And prenatal vitamins do not have enough B12 to correct the deficiency. And they are giving offspring that are having they're lower in B12 and having problems. And you can cause developmental disabilities in infants and babies and, and fetuses in the womb if they do not have enough B12. So it's critically important. That's why they are at risk for B12 deficiency because it depends on how long they've been a vegan or vegetarian, their other medical history that could lead or risk factors that could lead them to be more B12 deficient than others. Now, physicians, and I've read this in medical textbooks, that you only have to be careful of strict vegans for B12 deficiency, that is not true. Vegetarians have a higher incidence, and they always, always should be screened. There is a woman in Alabama who was a lacto-ovo-vegetarian for like 25 years and had a child that was severely B12 deficient, and this child now has a severe de- developmental disability that he will have for life because his B12 was severely low, and unfortunately, we don't screen adults in America right now for B12 deficiency, let alone infants and children. Pediatricians do not even understand B12 deficiency in infants and children, so they don't screen them at all. This child was highly symptomatic for B12 deficiency. He even had laboratory abnormalities that showed he had a B12 deficiency, and they all missed it chronically for two years. And he kept getting weaker and weaker. The child almost died, and what the end result was, he did have a severe B12 deficiency, but there's a critical window of opportunity to treat B12 deficiency or otherwise you'll, the patient will die or you'll cause nerve injury, which also means not just your 
fingers and legs, but also brain injury. And that's what this child has. He has a brain injury from a delayed diagnosis of B12 deficiency, which is unacceptable. Unacceptable in, in 2000, even 1990 or 1980s. Unacceptable. Let's talk about the lack of universally accepted screening protocols and what you're suggesting. Well, I suggest that anybody who is symptomatic, and symptomatic means, you know, B12 deficiency, we've known this for decades, for 100 years, it causes neurologic signs and symptoms, psychiatric symptoms, and blood or hematologic signs and symptoms. And the reason that is, is because B12 is needed for that myelin. So the classic symptoms since the 1900s, we know that it causes paresthesias, like I mentioned before, so numbness and tingling to the hands or feet, weakness of the legs, arms, or trunk, abnormal reflexes when a doctor uses a, a reflex hammer, unsteady or abnormal gait. You can have balance problems, dizziness, tremor, difficulty ambulating. Some of these are later signs. How about fatigue? But Okay, now that's, that's more of the, the blood signs. So the hematologic signs are generalized weakness like all over, fatigue, you can get short of breath, people become anemic. But you do not have to be anemic because what we have, we, we have learned, if you go back and look at articles in the early 1900s and even in the late 1800s and even in the early part of the century, they, the neuropsychiatric manifestations which is be the nerve and the brain, well precede the blood picture. So before the blood becomes anemic or before the people get macrocytic, the, the blood cells get enlarged, they, they have these neural signs and symptoms first. And the reason why, so you can't go by the traditional name pernicious anemia. That's what physicians are looking for. For them to think B12 deficiency, they're looking for anemia. That's one of the, the reasons they're missing it. But you don't have to be anemic. And what we're learning, if you wait till they get severely anemic, you can have permanent nerve damage. That's what we're trying to prevent. So the, the number one thing is we need to re-educate physicians, clinicians, healthcare institutions like nursing homes, what the signs and symptoms of B12 deficiency are. And have to, even though we've, we've kept that name for uh, just tradition, it's kind of, adding to the confusion and diagnosing patients late. My mother had Alzheimer's and passed away in 2008. And in the later few years, she was in Sunrise Assisted Living. And a few months before she passed, she fell. And then I became interested in how many people, once they fall, die very soon afterward for some reason. By the way, in the anti-aging realm, B12 has been overlooked. Oh, and it's, it's, I mean, it doesn't even make sense because when, it's kind of funny, when I used for the last two decades, when I would want people to be tested, they go, oh, that's an old person's disease. Just like my hematologist back in the 80s told, and he was a hematologist for 20 years, said, oh, that's an old person's disease. I was like, oh, I think when I went to him, I was like 24, 25. He was like, he just completely dismissed it. So they know it's an old person's disease. The signs and symptoms of normal aging and the signs and symptoms of a true B12 deficiency are identical. Therefore, you're not going to know. Just like when you screen for, you know, we, we can't tell by looking at someone if they have diabetes or thyroid disorder. You know, you have to test them, okay? 
they, they have symptoms. They may have symptoms of increased thirst, urinating all the time, like for diabetes, et cetera, okay, or, or for hypothyroidism if you're tired. But we can't put our hand on you and say, oh, you know, you have this or that. That's why we do testing. That's why we screen them. Or even for cholesterol, you know, we, we screen you for it. We don't know. We're, all we're asking is the same for B12 deficiency. Screen people who are at risk. Anybody who's symptomatic, you have to screen for it. Just like if a diabetic came in and complaining of increased thirst, urination, tired, we, what, we wouldn't test them for diabetes? Of course we would. So why aren't we doing this for B12 deficiency? Especially when you know you can cause nerve injury, it is related to fall-related trauma, you can cause cognitive decline and dementia, why wouldn't you test for it? Well, here's my question. Why wait for anything symptomatic? Why can't it be a part of something we always test for? It should. That's what we're trying to do. We, we can't even get them to test symptomatic patients, let alone putting it in a protocol. This is, what, this is what you test for. So, yes, it should be, absolutely. And the people who are at risk and who to test would be anybody with neurologic or motor signs or symptoms, mental status changes, anybody with a suspicion of dementia or even the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease always should be checked. Anybody with psychiatric disorders, and a lot of people don't realize that anybody who has depression or, an, or on an antidepressant, that's included under psychiatric disorders. So anybody with depression, anybody with gastrointestinal disorders, gastrointestinal surgeries, people who are very high at risk are pa- patients who have gastric bypass who are overweight. They notoriously, they're going to get B12 deficiency. Why? You have to have a healthy functioning stomach to absorb B12. So in time, they will become severely uh, B12 deficient. Anybody who has anemia, and we're going to get back to anemia because I didn't answer another question you asked. Anemia, anybody who has enlarged red blood cells, people age 60 and over just should be screened yearly for this. How about kids? Well, children, the signs and symptoms of B12 deficiency in infants and children, you have to remember, they're going to present differently because they haven't acquired speech and language. But they have um, poor socialization, language delay, speech problems, and meaning like what, like if a, what a one-year-old should be talking, a two-year-old, the amount of words. Um, lower IQ, they will have apathy, irritability. They can, they can lead up to seizures. They have gait problems. They can become anemic. They can become macrocytic. Because we know that children are fed such horrible food most of the time. Unless the parents are really involved and take care of themselves, the children are probably eating junk. The number one reason why a child is B12 deficient is because that mother, during her pregnancy, she did not have a, enough B12. See, we got to remember, this is not just an older person's disease. For instance, when I was in my 20s and I didn't get my doctors to... Um, test me for B12 deficiency and I would have been pregnant, I would have absolutely would have had a B12 deficient child and it could be mentally retarded. We know in the literature from the 60s, when you look up cobalamin, another name for B12 is cobalamin, but B12 deficiency in infants and young children, they would do, like, you know, they followed these children for a while, they would use the term that they became mentally retarded. They had like a brain injury from being B12 deficient. So it, it, it really does attack the brain. 
But the women, why they were, why these children were deficient is because during pregnancy or during breastfeeding, the mother had no idea she was B12 deficient or she had sub, or maybe like a, a, a lower B12, not a good, she had like lacking the B12. And when she breastfed, that child did not have enough stores. And you need B12 for the brain development and growth. And it's so critical during that period in child growth and development. So that's why children, any child with developmental delay that the physician feels or the parent feels should always be checked for B12 deficiency. To take it back one step further, women who are pregnant, who are preconception and during pregnancy, we should be screening these women for B12 deficiency because we want to, you know, not create any kind of injury in children. You know, we have to start wondering this epidemic of autism. When you look at the signs and symptoms of autism and developmental delay and you look at the signs and symptoms that's documented in medical textbooks for B12 deficiency in pediatrics, they are very similar. Therefore, instead of just saying, oh, I think he's on the autism spectrum, please check the child for a B12 deficiency. And once you learn the risk factors and the signs and the symptoms and you go back and start asking the mother, et cetera, you will see patterns and they should just be, they should be screened. And you cannot, and this is a mistake the physician makes, you cannot go by a complete blood count looking for anemia or macrocytosis because you're not going to see it. And this is the question I didn't answer before. You had asked, is there a confusion between... Okay, folic acid and B12. Yes. When, you, when they do a blood count, what they're looking for is anemia, which B12 deficiency definitely can cause, and they're looking for these enlarged red blood cells. If you take enough folic acid by supplement or in foods, and in 1998 we refortified all our cereal and grain in the U.S. to prevent birth defects in infants and children. So we're getting a lot of folic acid, and when women are pregnant, they have fortified the vitamins with a lot of folic acid so they won't get uh, spina bifida or birth defects. Okay, so these women are on high-dose folic acid. When a person takes enough folic acid, and if you have a folic acid deficiency, similar to B12 deficiency, you'll get macrocytosis. So both those vitamins are kind of like sisters or cousins. They kind of work together. Totally different, but they work together. And if you're deficient in either, your red blood cells get real big. So if a woman is taking enough folic acid or any person and you truly have a B12 deficiency but you're taking a lot of folic acid, the cells will shrink down to normal and that's what they call it masks the macrocytosis. It'll shrink them down so you will not see the enlarged red blood cells on a complete blood count. That's what they call that you should kind of, people who are on folic acid therapy are at higher risk of getting misdiagnosed, not because it interferes with it, just because the doctor is relying on having enlarged red blood cells. This is why we don't see it in pregnant women, because they're all on high folic acid. We're not seeing as much macrocytosis in anybody anymore because people are eating a lot of folic acid for heart health, for, um, and it's already fortified in our grains and cereals, Okay. So you're not going to see the macrocytosis we did in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, okay? So that's one reason. And the other thing why we don't see macrocytosis is if you have a coexisting iron deficiency, when a person is iron deficient, their cells and their blood count get very small, and they call that microcytic. So if you have 
a B12 deficiency and an iron deficiency going on at the same time, big cells and little cells, it averages out, and this mean corpuscular volume, this number that we're looking for that's elevated in the B12 deficiency, won't be elevated because you have the coexisting iron deficiency. So that figure that they're looking for a physician in the blood count is just a mathematical calculation of the cell size. That's why you're not going to see it. And they even say in the, pharma, um, in the PDR and in other pharmacy books for physicians and nurses, et cetera, well, for physicians because they prescribe, you would never, ever, ever give somebody, prescribe high folic acid therapy to anybody who has a B12 deficiency. Why? Because those cells are going to shrink and they're going to not let the physician think of B12 deficiency. In my opinion, I still think people should be taking folic acid. It's not bad for you. should be taking. It's just if we screen people and we're more aware of what B12 deficiency does, it's irrelevant. And a physician should never just rely on a complete blood count because you could have an iron deficiency, a lot of different reasons, especially because we've fortified our cereal and grain in the United States. So, and, and if you look at the prenatal vitamins, that's why I think they do not screen women who are pregnant or during... Um, pregnancy or postpartum for B12 deficiency, and they should because they're at risk. And you have to remember, a lot of women are vegans, vegetarians. They're on the high-dose folic acid. They're never going to be macrocytic. Not never, but very rarely would they be. And so, therefore, we're missing a lot of children who are going to be B12 deficient. And there's a woman in the Midwest that her, um, you know, they didn't screen. Her child is now, this was happened in 2008, is going to be mentally retarded for life, had a severe B12 deficiency, the mother was low, and that's because we don't screen. That's an, and so that's another group of people. Not only should we be screening elderly, women who are pregnant, we absolutely should start screening programs, and they need to you know, document the incidence of it. Have you ever heard of the Life Extension Foundation in Florida? No. They do a ton of scientific research, and you can call and order your own blood tests for things that you're interested in. I don't know if they screen for B12. I imagine that you can. I'm going to check. I think that if the doctors do not become more receptive and humble and they're showing signs of not wanting to be engaged in continuous current learning, we are going to have to take this upon ourselves and get tested. Well, I think I think two ways of this. I think it's I think, you know, in a sense, if you have health insurance, okay? and other people who are on governmental health insurance, this is something that you shouldn't, I feel, you should not have to pay on your own to do. You already pay for your health insurance. This is, this is not some new funky test. This is a test been out for a century. It's easy to, it's just we need to re-educate the healthcare community and they have to get involved. There's no reason I feel, I mean, I guess if you have to, yes, absolutely, you, sh- you could do what you're suggesting. But I think it's absurd that you would have to go to that extreme and pay out money on your own when you have health insurance. That's, that's the craziness of this. And, and when they have to realize, too, people need to realize that, and I, physicians are becoming more on board, there are actual malpractice cases where patients are injured from B12 deficiency. In fact, currently, there are two men in their 50s in wheelchairs because their physician and everybody who they've come across never contemplated could their neurological presentation be caused from vitamin B12 deficiency. And these men, will they are permanently injured in their prime of their life at age 50. They start getting symptoms in their, in their late 40s. And so that just goes to show you, and this happened like in 2010. 
So we're talking, even though I had a book published in 2005, this is very late getting out to the community. We're getting a little bit, each year we're, we're getting more, you know, people involved, et cetera, but physicians are starting to pr- practice defensive medicine because they know they can be in r- realistic malpractice suits. This is not just new. This is, there's malpractice suits for years, for decades going on with B12 deficiency. The problem is you don't hear about them because most of them are settled out of court. They don't like to publicly announce them. And a lot of times there's agreements where what you can talk about what you can't. And I feel B12 deficiency is one of is healthcare's dirtiest secret presently. Let's talk for a moment about the dangerously low values for the serum B12 tests. Share about that because it's kind of like the food pyramid. All that they found out was like 500% low in value. But let's talk about the B12 values and how low they are and what we should be expecting. Well, the serum B12, um, for instance, the institution I work at, it goes 211 to 911. Some places go 180 to 1,000. And so when you look at that, it's a huge range. So if you have, say, 211 to 911, and say you come back 350 or even 275, you're going to go, well, that's normal. Well, you're on, the, you're on the lower end of the range. We know, and I remember in, in when I was in nursing school in the 80s, I remember reading the laboratory um, report of how did they figure out this range. And what they did, I think it was like 50 or 100 per people they took. They didn't say the ages. I mean, they were over 18 and who, who felt healthy, looked healthy. They did CBCs, which we know you can't even go by a complete blood count. I mean, they, they didn't have any health problems. They felt good or whatever. And that's what they decided what a normal B12 should be. Now, what if these, because I know myself, I wasn't really symptomatic at all. I just did it because I was lucky that I had the macrocytosis. At that time, I really didn't like vegetables, et cetera. This is before folic acid was introduced in the grain. And so they made up this range but we know in the literature that people who absolutely are 350 and lower, they can seriously have a B12 deficiency. And we even found people 450 and below, they can, they're symptomatic. They are suggesting that for health, really, you want your serum B12 to be, really be over 1,000, especially if you're taking supplements, you should be over 1,000. So if somebody has neurologic or psychiatric symptoms or at risk, and say you come back 300, they're not going to treat you because that lab, that says that's normal. You have to be below 211, below 200, below 180. Even the CDC, they write that a B12 deficiency is less than 200. Craziness. So you, it's craziness. Yeah, and if you come back 210, your physician is not going to – some of them will not treat you. There's becoming more little education. Now, I'm not saying every physician – but the majority of physicians will not. Now, there are physicians that are up-to-date on B12, and they know about it, and they are treating people. There are some physicians, if people are under 500, they treat. We definitely should, what we could do, there are some other tests out there to help diagnose B12 deficiency. Talk about them. Talk about them. One is methylmalonic acid, other is homocysteine, and another one is whole transcobalamin 2. Methylmalonic acid, it's a pathway. And if you do not have enough B12, it's an acid in our body that we normally have. If you don't have B12, it uses it as a cofactor, this acid will rise. So it's an indirect way of testing for B12 deficiency. So if you're deficient, this methylmonic acid, or MMA we call it, abbreviated, will be elevated. 
So that's a way of looking for B12 deficiency. The same thing for homocysteine. It's another pathway. If you do not have enough B12, a cofactor, the homocysteine will be elevated. The problem is these tests are expensive, and we know that people between 200 and 350, a lot of times, like, you'll see those elevated even up to, like, 500. If you are dehydrated or if you have um, renal insufficiency, like your kidneys problems, you can get fictitiously elevations. Homocysteine is also for folic acid deficiency, B6 deficiency, and if you have a thyroid problem, that can be elevated, and with the renal. So they're indirect tests, but you have to look at them with all the values. What we're seeing, though, is a lot of people under 400 who are really symptomatic of B12 deficiency, sometimes we'll see those elevated, which kind of shows, hey, like they get a B12 deficiency. If we would just raise what the current lower limit of B12, say, from 200, say, to 400 or 450 or even 500, but definitely we feel it should be 450 because by looking at all the literature of cases coming in and the people that we see, we know if you're 450 and below, you're starting to have a problem. We, we don't want you to wait to 200 until you're, like, really symptomatic or you have nerve damage because then we may not be able to reverse your problems. And then it, it, B12 deficiency doesn't happen over a day, over a week, over a couple months. It's progressive, right? It's a very right? slow, insidious process. So if you're, say, 310, 350, and you're symptomatic and you're, like, have depression, you're on antidepressants, for you to get below the 200, what the CDC is suggesting, it's going to take you maybe a year, year and a half. You have poor health. And you have the risk of causing maybe permanent cognitive problems like dementia or causing permanent neuropathy or causing a fall, et cetera. Okay? So that's why we don't want to wait till you get below 200 because we already know that those neuropsychiatric symptoms begin and we know that the range is wrong. Okay. The other problem that we're finding is the serum methylmonic acid and the homocysteine, they're kind of all over the place. We've been seeing people for 10 years, you know, checking methylmonic acid, B12, homocysteine. If, and sometimes we get people that are way deficient and the MMA and homocysteine are fine. That doesn't mean that they don't have a deficiency. If you are symptomatic and one of those tests are abnormal, you treat. And we've found literature recently in the last, like, four years of physician groups who have, who have done studies where they're finding what, what me and Dr. Stewart have also found in our own practices, that those, sometimes those tests are not really reliable. So if they're not as reliable and they're expensive, why don't we just raise the lower limit or treat people who are symptomatic? Now, when people are symptomatic, absolutely, we're not saying everything is B12 deficiency. Of course not. There are many reasons for many symptoms. We're saying that B12 should always be included in the diagnostic workup of a patient. And say if you can't find a reason for their problem and say they come back uh, 380, you need to treat that person with B12. Just as a physician would try a therapeutic trial of an antidepressant if you came into them and said, oh, I'm depressed or whatever, either they keep you on the drug, they up the drug, they lower the drug, or discontinue it, okay, or keep you on it forever. The same thing you can do with, with B12 therapy. You can give a, a clinical trial to see if it's working. Now, obviously, if a person is below... Um, 350, you've got a problem and you need to be treated. Absolutely. In our book, we advocate the lower limit being 450 and below because we're trying to, you know, 
catch you before you start having big problems. But we predominantly see people below 400 having, having major problems. Now, I want to get into B12 injections. I really want you to lay it out for the audience where you stand and why you stand where you stand about what you consider at this point in your investigations the most effective. Okay, well, my personal opinion and preference, I like the B12 injections. And I've been on B12 injections for, boy, at least probably 25 years now. Um, there are three different forms of B12 out there. One is cyanocobalamin, hydroxocobalamin, and methylcobalamin. And those are forms that are in- injectable, and they also make those forms in tablets or sublingual forms. Um, B12, there's, there's, in Sweden, they do use pills, and they say that the B12 is, it's fine to treat people that way. But when you clinically look at people and you compare giving oral B12 versus injections, it's night and day. I think it really depends on why the person has a deficiency. Um, if you give enough sublingual B12, and some people successfully can be treated with, say, 5,000 micrograms, which equals 5 milligrams of B12 sublingual, always prefer the sublingual or lozenge tablet versus an oral tablet because your body has to break it down and maybe it's not, if you don't have acid properly, et cetera, maybe you're not, you're getting it. You have to remember, too, what's the shelf life of these drugs? The sublingual and the tablets, they're not really well studied and the efficacy and each company is different in what they're putting in. We know that people, the coenzyme is methyl B12. Your body, when you take cyanocobalamin, has to convert like four different steps, goes through your liver, you have to convert it, the body has to convert it to the coenzyme, which is methyl B12. And methyl B12 is the B12 that we need to utilize for the brain and the nervous system. So the bottom line is B12 injections are cheap. A 30cc vial of hydroxylcobalamin, which is a form that's available in the United States, made by a uh, drug company, a 30cc vial costs only 30, I checked the price the other day for somebody, it was $33.63. That vial will last a year, and I, that's the kind I use. It lasts me a year. And it's a multi-vial dose. You have to be very sterile when you draw it up, and you can self-inject your injections. B12 injections can be given in the muscle and can be given in the fatty tissue, in the subcutaneous tissue. So... My rationale is diabetics, they give themselves daily injections and they're able to handle it. Some of them are elderly. It's not painful. These small needles are not painful at all. Yeah, who are maybe even like debilitated, et cetera. And they're doing their injections of diabetics like every day or twice a day. You can surely handle giving an injection, you know, bi-monthly or weekly. It's very easy and the beauty of the B12, like insulin, you have to be completely, you know, 100% how much you're giving. So even drawing it up, it's very easy to mark. You'll be able to self-inject. And that's what we, if you go to a physician, they don't want you coming in all the time for injections. And that's why I think this protocol that they give you once a month is way too long for somebody to wait and to get an office appointment, to pay a copay, et cetera, in the beauty of your own home, you learn how to self-inject or you have a family member and you can take care of it. It would be cheaper. And you know you're getting it, you're getting it in your system. I'm not against the 
sublingual tablets, I think there is a place for them for, for many patients, especially for vegans and vegetarians, maybe for pregnant people. And I think it's definitely where if you're deficient, you absolutely could try the, the sublingual type and, and see if you get a response. But we do know that there's about 15, 20% of the people, they do much better on injections than the other. So the majority of the public, 80%, probably would do fine on high-dose sublingual. But what we do advocate, too, before everybody starts running out there and taking B12, if you are symptomatic or at risk, you need to baseline see where I'm at. Why do you want to know where you're at before you start taking it on your own? Is because you want to know, is my depression or my neuropathy, or my forgetfulness, et cetera, you know, you fell and you broke your hip, is, was this related to B12 deficiency? Why you want to know that? Maybe you can get off some of your other drugs. And if you are deficient, that's going to be a different protocol of how you treat. When you give an injection, you excrete like 90% within the first 24 hours, even like taking sub, sub, subliminal too. You have to rebuild your body stores. And then you have, there's a different, there's a protocol you give when someone's deficient. So first of all, you need to know, was I deficient or not? Because you need to know, and then your doctor can try to figure out why is that person B12 deficient? There's causes, which will help you with your otherwise health, because it may lead them to diagnosing something else in you. Like, why is this person B12 deficient? So it may change the way you're being treated. The other reason, too, is there's some people that are injured out there that don't even know they're injured from B12 deficiency, and you have a malpractice suit. Maybe you're living, you know, you're debilitated, et cetera. So, and yes, you can't regain some of the nerve damage. Some people are permanently crippled, but absolutely you're going to need it for life and health, and you need that documented. You can't take B12 for a month or two months or, say, a month and then stop it for two months and then get your blood test. It doesn't work that way. You're going to screw up all your blood results. So if you, if you are symptomatic or at risk or older, you should get yourself tested, and then you go from there because that way will dictate what treatment program you need. They need to then look at your whole history and maybe, you know, certain psychiatric drugs or depression drugs, they're expensive. Certain ones you can't just abruptly stop. You have to be weaned off them, et cetera. But say if you have severe depression and you're B12 deficient, you'll be able probably to get off your antidepressant medications, but your doctor needs to work with you to get them off and you'll be saving yourself some money and doing your body a, a total service, getting yourself off drugs you don't need. I want to go back to the other aspects of this, which is that there are uh, breast cancer uh, has increased since there's been B12 deficiency noticed in postmenopausal women. B12 is effective with the immune system, and autoimmune problems are connected to this B12 deficiency. Can you talk about, first of all, the breast cancer and the B12 deficiency postmenopausal profile of women? Well, B12 is needed for your entire system. It affects, and it's not, you know, the GI, the neurologic system, and the blood system are the major, but it affects the immune, the vascular, GI, skeletal, and your um, urinary system. So, when you're B12 deficient, actually your white blood cell count goes down, and that's the ones that fight infection. So people are more prone to get infections or not heal properly. They've even found studies where people who have wounds, like the cubis ulcers, like elderly people, they're B12 deficient, and they do much better when you, when you replace what they're deficient of. So 
if it affects your immune system, you're more apt to be able to, they've, they've done studies where they have found people who have cancer are B12 deficient. The other thing with cancer that they have to realize too is that anytime people get chemotherapy or radiation therapy, that destructs your B12. You need B12 for your blood. And the traditional thing when they think of B12 is pernicious anemia. It affects the bone marrow. And you need B12 for life. You know, blood gives you life. Um, that in itself, they're finding a lot of cancer patients that are B12 deficient. In fact, we we're finding a, um, they're going to be doing a study on patients receiving chemotherapy and radiation where, in fact, where I work, there is one group that they're finding so many people are B12 deficient that, that have going through chemotherapy. Of course it does because it just, you know, it affects the bone marrow. So you need more B12. And sometimes um, oncologists, they'll give you, they give B12 in a, like a multivitamin cocktail they give intravenously. But if they're using just six micrograms of B12, that's not enough. What we found is cancer patients need a lot more B12 to replace what the chemo and radiation is doing to their body, and they do much better. In fact, a, a true story is I have a hairdresser who has colon cancer, stage four, and she has had this for four years, but she had surgery on her um, colon, removed it, was good for two years, came back, and now colon is clean, but she has it in her lungs, like 17 different nodules, and some in her liver. They can't remove them because they're too hard to get to, but stage four, so it's through her, her, her system. She's been on chemotherapy for two years, Oh never a blood transfusion or platelet transfusion. I give her with the permission of her oncologist because she swears, and it does, it, I give her an, a B12 injection every week. She gets a, a B12 injection, and now she's learned how to do it herself. So weekly she gets hydroxycobalamin, and it just improves her energy. She's able to work, and it's two years. Her tumors aren't shrinking, but they're not growing, which is good, and she still gets her chemo. The chemo really wipes her out. But when you think about this, can you imagine the amount of money we could save? A lot of cancer patients are on Procrit, which is very expensive. Um, it's an anemia agent to help anemia, which cancer patients get, renal patients get. And it probably costs like about $4,000, like a three, four months treatment of it. If you could use B12 to add to that, and do just as well, if not better, that would make more sense financially for this country. They need to do studies on that. Plus, if you give a person Procrit to help their anemia, and they truly have a B12 deficiency, and that's why they're really anemic, not only are you kind of fictitiously somewhat elevating their, you know, helping their anemia, but you're allowing that neurological, that myelin to be destroyed over time, and that's why they're sickly and they don't feel good, et cetera. So this is a huge another area of research that they need to start documenting new stuff and use it in cancer patients. I have a dear friend who just went through six weeks of radiation and chemotherapy, and they don't even know if she has cancer. <laughs> Lovely. Um, and I have watched her almost be destroyed, almost at the destruction level from the treatment itself, and she has zero energy. She's violently sick. And she can't eat. She has to take Insure through a feeding tube through her stomach. Can't eat, can't drink water. 
It is so sad. And I have her getting hyperbaric oxygen treatments right now to get rid of the radiation sickness that she has from the treatment. But it sounds like the B12 would be incredible for her, yeah, too. Yeah, what she should, do, she should do is definitely get, get a baseline B12. Where am I at? And we kind of advocate now not even doing the MMA homocysteine because those are all over and you just use a different range. But definitely get a baseline B12, even if, say, she was fine, okay? Because sometimes they, they may have given her, like, a B12 um, injection after a treatment. Who knows? Because each, you know, I think they're starting to learn about I'm hearing more oncology centers going, hey, they're starting to do the B12. In fact, my, my, they have learned through my hairdresser that she now hears the nurses at the oncology center saying to the patient, did you get your B12 shot? So it's kind of like they're, they're trying something on their own. But she should get a baseline, and then she should get weekly injections. Doing it once a month, and this is our... How many great. injections in a week? Huh? How many injections? Well, if she's deficient, if she's deficient, what she really should get is she should get an injection every other day for six injections. So three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Thereafter, get injection once a week. Got it. And see how she improves. Okay. You know, the, the beauty of B12 also, it's non-toxic. You, and it's excreted, you're not going to retain it. Like there's certain fat-soluble vitamins you can get too much. You'll urinate out what you don't need. Um, to give you an example how safe it is, we give 1,000 micrograms, which also equals a milligram. So people think, oh, my God, a 1,000 micrograms, oh, that's so much. It's, it's not. Because we know for safety we can use a certain form of B12 called hydroxocobalamin. We use it for cyanide poisoning. They've been using it in Europe for decades or maybe like 10 years. We finally introduced it in the U.S. probably, I think it was 2007 or eight that we now use it as a treatment for cyanide poisoning. And what they do, they give the patient five grams of B12 mixed in a solution of saline, and they infuse it in the patient over 15 minutes. Five grams equals 5,000 times the amount of one B12 injection, the 1,000 micrograms. It's 5,000 times that amount, infusing it intravenously in 15 minutes. So when people go, oh, my God, like, you know, if you're getting injection once a week, they think, oh, it's too much. It's not too much. You, 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 you know what I mean? That just shows you the safety of the, of the drug. Not saying that you should give somebody 5,000. That's for a totally different reason. Cyanide poisoning, if someone tried to kill someone or industrial accidents, what it does is when you give B12 through the body, the hydroxocobalamin binds with the cyanide, and it creates cyanocobalamin, and that's what you excrete out. It's so complex, isn't it? Yeah, but, but, it's, but it's very safe, so you don't have to, to worry. And, and the, the treatment protocol in medical textbooks, for decades, when someone is B12 deficient, they usually give a shot daily. And we say every other day just so people don't, they think, like, oh, if a shot is, is, is hurting too much, and it really doesn't hurt much. You could give it daily times six or seven or every other day so you get that initial seven, six or seven in, and then you can go weekly. Some people, for maintenance, do well on bimonthly, like every two weeks a shot. Other people do well on weekly shots. Now, the literature, they always say you give a B12 injection once a month. If you talk to people who truly have B12 deficiency, they know week three they are dragging. That makes no sense to make them wait a month, especially when they can self-administer it. It's not toxic. It's safe. And it's, it's kind of like if you were to take a pill once a month. It, it makes no sense. So we have to really look back in the 40s and 50s. 
when they wrote protocols for B12 deficiency, because people actually died in the early 1900s. That's why they called it deadly anemia. Eventually, they had severe neurological destruction, and then they died from the severe anemia, and they died. In fact, people probably don't know this, but Alexander Graham Bell died of, of pernicious anemia in the early 20s. And so did that Annie Oakley. She died from pernicious anemia. So people actually died from it. If we can, I wanted to go back to the issue of being tested, that everybody should be tested to know your levels. Very much now people are finally tuned into getting their D levels tested, you know, vitamin D levels, and vitamin D is so important now, and they're realizing that our whole baseline of what we need is totally different, totally, thousands of percent different than what we were told we needed. Same thing, exactly. You had also talked about how B12 can assist with vision problems. Well, again, because, you know, when, when people think of nerves, they kind of think of just like your arms and legs, your spinal, you know, area. Nerves are all throughout our body. There's nerves that innervate the stomach, the bladder, okay, it, all over your body. And people who have true B12 deficiency can have optic neuritis or optic atrophy. You can actually destroy the nerves of your eyes. So, you know, even though nerves are all throughout your body, absolutely with the, with the vision. You need nerves with that. So when you have a B12 deficiency, again, it's that myelin. And if that myelin is attacked, that's a fatty substance that, that it doesn't transmit properly. People get peripheral vision loss. You can actually have blindness from B12 deficiency. So that's why, you know, elderly people, again, you know, they could have like macular degeneration, this or that. A true story, my husband's grandmother was in her late 80s, and she probably was, oh, I think at the time, 86. And she had to go in for um, surgery for, like, macular degeneration. They were watching one eye. Well, at the time, we had, we told her, you got to get yourself B12 tested. She lived in a different state. So she went to her doctor, and he went, oh, you're fine, Mary, you know, because her blood count looked good. But she was deficient. So anyway, we said, what was your level? And it turned out he never tested her. So then she said, you know, my grandson's a physician, really. So he did it as a courtesy, tested her. Well, then he was embarrassed because she came back deficient, okay? So she got the series, taken the hydroxyl And This is just to show you. She was a diabetic and gave herself insulin. She decided she was going to give herself her own B12 injections because it was more convenient, and somebody tried to charge her $15 for every injection. So she figured, I give insulin. I know how to give it. So she'd give herself regular B12 injections. When she went back for her three-month checkup of her eye, the ophthalmologist was like, whoa, like, you, you don't need, your eye is cleared up. Like, she couldn't believe it. It was the B12. So, you know, maybe when they're giving visual tests, that's another thing. Absolutely another good study for ophthalmologists to do, people with macular degeneration or anything with the retina. You got to remember, diabetics are high risk for B12 deficiency. Patients who are diagnosed with MS get optic neuritis, optic atrophy because of the nerves, because of the myelin. And elderly, they should always be checking patients for B12 deficiency. There are people that have to rebuild their storehouse of B12 levels. Yet the B12 injections, they go out of your system within 24 hours out your urine. So how do you build your storehouse of levels if you're excreting it every 24 hours? Well, you just like a pill, like you take something in, you excrete it. That's why people take daily pills. That's why taking a shot once a month just doesn't do it, okay? When you're, when you're that deficient, what happens is, is they want, you're trying to help your, your nervous system, your myelin, et cetera. That's why they give you, um, you're so low 
that, you know, and some physicians do this, which is a mistake. Say they find someone to be B12 deficient, they'll give them a shot, and then they want them to come back in a month. You know, maybe they, you, you're so deficient, maybe you don't even, like, really even feel that much better. You feel, like, a little better. But you need to give more to kind of... Um, Jumpstart the body? Yeah, I guess in a sense, okay, and to help, like, the nerves. Or, or, what you're also trying to do, you're trying to repair any kind of damage or that myelin, that anything that's happening is, is to give the body B12 of how the body, like, repairs itself. You're, you're giving back what it is needed. What about how much of the B12 injections are absorbed? versus excreted. Can you share about that? I don't, it, you know, it depends on probably where the B, they say that your liver retains like B12, and this is where I think the vegan vegetarian community gets a little confused. They did research way in the early 1900s of the metabolism of B12, and then your liver kind of stores it, and that's why people can live for a long time. That, that why they're trying to rebuild your stores is that way if you need some, then the body, the liver will kind of give a little bit out to the system. But what we know, you know, maybe that's for life and death or people who are, uh, you know, starvation camps, et cetera, that maybe you won't, it takes you a long time to die from a B12 deficiency. But you got to remember when you're getting up to that point, these people have a lot of nerve damage or they're going to have some brain problems, et cetera. So maybe it looks theoretically on paper and they, and they were able to study these people back in the day when they didn't have B12 and, and showing and theoretically, yeah, maybe there's a little B12 that they put out so you're able to kind of, the body knows how to conserve, like, so you won't die, but it's not good for your system. So to say how much is stored in and how much you use, and again, there's so many different factors. For instance, we know people who have liver problems, people who are alcoholics, people who have hepatitis, um, say even liver cancers, they may have a higher reported out serum B12. It's a fictitious because the liver is involved in transferring the B12 into methylcobalamin, the coenzyme that your body needs. And when you have a faulty liver, it may not be able to convert it out or for you able to use it. So there's other people. That's why B12 is very complicated. And so when a physician looks at a B12 and you see, like, say, 600 and they got a liver problem, that's going to be fictitious because... It has a different meaning. Okay, I hear you. you would treat. So there's other little things we haven't talked about. There's different circumstances. So a lot of physicians, when someone is very deficient, like say they get down into like 130, 120s, a lot of times they'll give um, they'll give daily injections sometimes for two weeks, and they'll and they'll definitely give like a shot every week for three weeks. This is even in the literature. They'll give a shot every because they're trying to repair what they can. You know, after six months of therapy of high-dose B12, you'll kind of know where you're going to be post-injury. These are people who were misdiagnosed, and then they kind of finally, somebody did the B12 and went, whoa, this is what your problem is. So retaining and storing, that's why the, the, the method of taking a sublingual B12 daily kind of makes sense. And that's why a lot of people can, um, will benefit from that. There are those people maybe 15, 20% that will do better on injection or they swear by them, they, they feel better. Um, you wonder why is that? And that's what really needs to be researched. The question is, there is such a thing, this is a little bit complicated, where there's like 10 to 16% of the population have an inborn error with homocysteine. 
Homocysteine can be very elevated, and the full expressed genetic problem can cause mental retardation in children, and it causes severe vascular, like clots that can get strokes in their brain, et cetera, because the homocysteine is too high. But sick, and, it, and it's, it's an inborn error, and it's rare. But we know 10 to 16% of the population have a, a slight defect of that gene, and what happens with them, they don't have the full expression, but they get vascular disease earlier in their 30s and 40s. That's why they check for high homocysteine in the blood for heart attacks, strokes, blood clots in the lung, in the leg. And when you have an elevated homocysteine, you make clots. So these people have a tendency to have a um, predisposition for vascular disease earlier because they have a partial defect. The question is, are these people that do better on the injections and more frequent injections have a defect in the B12 metabolism? And we know there are inborn errors of B12 metabolism in infants and children. So maybe these people that do better on injections and more frequent have a partial defect in that gene. That's something that needs to be you know, evaluated and looked into. I want to bring up something controversial, if I may. In one part of the book, you wrote about how you and your husband feel that for people who have a B12 deficiency to get flu shots or to get any type of vaccinations, that it's unethical. You didn't say unethical, but it's wrong. Well, I think it's wrong for other reasons, basically because there's a form of mercury in these injections, which is terrible for you. But tell us why you feel this way. Well, because I read a, a good article published in a scientific journal that it stated they tested elderly people that they gave the pneumonia vaccine to, and the people who were with the lower B12, which we would consider deficient, like under the 350, and people who are B12 deficient, they didn't respond to the vaccine because their immune system was suppressed, so they couldn't make the antibodies to protect them against pneumonia. So the point is, A, if we know that's true, and it was a large, it was a good study, and they reported it, and it's reported all over the place. If we know that's true, A, you're wasting, you're not really protecting that patient, okay? B, you're wasting money giving them a vaccine. You're, and the most important thing is that person needs, you're giving them pneumonia so they don't get pneumonia, but it didn't, they didn't have enough uh, health or body strength, their, their immune system was suppressed because of the B12 deficiency. They couldn't produce the antibody response, so it didn't protect them. So it's kind of like fictitious, but yet we're paying, you know, that office visit or you're paying for that flu shot, the consumer, and that drug company, whoever makes it, is making money. When the real problem, you know, you got to fix the, the crate before the horse or whatever, that you got to fix the real problem. If we know that you're not going to get a good immune response, and if we take that with pneumonia vaccine, it has to probably happen with other vaccines, okay, then you should, we need to make sure as a nation that we have a protocol and a policy that makes sure our elderly and other people are getting immunizations are not B12 deficient because it makes no sense. It doesn't protect the patient, and it's a waste of money. I get it. So that's why I feel... So I say that's, un, in a sense, unethical. It is unethical because if we know this study is true, why hasn't someone or the drug companies that make these vaccines or, some, or at least them start say, hey, make sure that person's not B12 deficient. So I think it is a social responsibility or health care that we kind of work together. It, it makes no sense what we're doing to people. 
And we can also relate that, you know, for children. We don't know the incidence of B12 deficiency in infants and children. I know there's a problem because I know there's pregnant women out there. You're, the, the OB physician, I'll tell you this right off the bat, they do not do routine serum B12s on pregnant or, or postpartum patients. You should do it during pregnancy. We'll do a whole bunch of ultrasounds. We do a whole bunch of blood work. They have everybody on iron and prenatal vitamins, but we don't check for B12. You're not going to see a B12 deficiency because of the high-dose folic acid and coexisting iron deficiency, which is common in pregnancy of being iron deficient, and they're already taking the, the um, folic acid. So they're not going to see that in the blood count, and the physician needs to be re-educated. It's not their fault. It's just because we need, they need to know this stuff. That way they'll start checking. They should also, and I think once they realize the incidence, they could place them on higher-dose B12. And I, I think another study that needs to be done, we need to really increase pregnancy, women with pregnancy, a protocol, what they should be taking B12-wise, and they could take it sublingually probably very well, and, and then see what is the incidence of autism. Is it going to go down? You know, all these on the autism spectrum, that's developmental delay, um, speech problems, language problems, those are classic signs and symptoms of B12 deficiency in pediatrics. So it makes no sense what we're doing. We're forgetting B12, and it's, it's, it is just it's a total disgrace <laughs> of, you know, we've come so far. We're always looking for new advances. And I guess the major problem is there's really no money to be made in B12 because the patent has been out long ago. I mean, these drug companies, I guess, still can make some money. Well, the drug companies are extremely interested in at least one of the Bs. They have now made it illegal for B6 to be sold independently by anybody in the whole United States. They want to patent B6. They have forbid even the Life Extension Organization from selling B6. They are forbidden. I don't see how they could do that. Well, they did. Six was made many moons ago. It doesn't matter. They want it. They want to patent it. Well, see, now that's that's a problem again with our whole legal system of how it just it makes like no sense. I mean, it makes no sense. Yeah, of course, it totally makes no sense, but it's a fact now. And the problem is with that. Once they get wind of that, you bet your buddy they're going to do that to B twelve because someone's going to again. Everything in this world has to do around money, and it's very it's very very sad because it's going to affect the health of us. Another controversial question. A lot of injections of any type, particularly vaccinations, have fillers or adjuncts in them. If there are any adjuncts or fillers in the hydroxycobalamin, what are they? Well, for instance, there, there is. They put preservatives in it. Um, in fact, I have a bottle in my refrigerator. I could read it to you, the one I use. <laughs> but... It, again, just like other drugs that we use, they have to put preservatives, otherwise you get bacteria and you, you wouldn't be able to, right. you know. This one has um, HCC, hydroxylcobalamin, acetate equivalent to 1,000, okay, sodium acetate, anhydrous, glacial acetic acid. So they're like preservatives. There's a sticker on the rest of this. But all the drugs we give injectable, I work in the ER, we give, there's, they have to have stuff to, to keep it. Now, a compounding pharmacy can make um, methyl B12 or hydroxyl B12. And some, I know in the autistic community, they don't want any preservatives, any, anything, and they put, um, um, they, you have to use them up by a certain day. I think it's like 30 days. Right. And then you just refrigerate them. Okay. And the last question, for the people that are eating lots of meat and vegetables. Eating lots of meat or processed meat, did you say? 
Lots of meat. Okay. Okay. Steak, hamburger, fish, chicken. They have a lot of protein in their system, so they don't feel they need to be tested. No, that's untrue. They, see, again, the number one reason why a person becomes B12 deficient is because of a malabsorption problem. That's my problem. I used, when I was younger, whatever, I really didn't like, sometimes you crave what you're deficient. I didn't eat, I was, I liked meat. I ate meat and stuff, okay? And I really wasn't keen on, you know, vegetables as much. I've changed since then, but it's because I couldn't absorb B12. I have a condition called, I have an autoimmune disorder, chronic atrophic gastritis, and for some reason, my body attacks my stomach lining, and it attacks the parietal cells with excrete intrinsic factor and hydrochloric acid. So I have like an old person's disease. I don't make any acid. I'm achlorhydric, and I don't have that intrinsic factor or the acid. And so I could eat all the meat in the world, and I was still deficient. You won't know unless you're tested. And there's different reasons. We didn't even go into the causes of B12. I want to go into that if you have 10 more minutes. Oh, absolutely. The causes are, again, decreased stomach acid, which for me, my um, problem is I don't have um, stomach acid, and it's autoimmune disease. You had asked me earlier why are autoimmune diseases more prone. We know when you have one autoimmune disease, you're more prone to other, other autoimmune diseases. It doesn't mean that causes it. So, for instance... Anybody who has a thyroid disorder should always be checked for autoimmune pernicious anemia, which is what I have, because we know there's a higher incidence of those two together. And vice versa, because I have autoimmune pernicious anemia, the B12, I should, I'm higher risk for having thyroid disorders, Hashimoto's and Graves' disease. And I did have one episode 10 years ago of Graves' disease, so they're, they're related. It's, that's why... Anybody with any kind of autoimmune disease, you should always be checked. And insulin-dependent diabetes, when diabetes in younger people, that is an autoimmune disease. That's why, that's one of the reasons why diabetics should be checked for that. Because once you have one autoimmune disease, you are at more risk for others. And that's what they call polyautoimmune disorders. Okay? So getting back to the causes, you can have an autoimmune disease like myself, the autoimmune pernicious anemia, decreased stomach acid, and... Decreased stomach acid, they know about 30% of people over the age of 55 have chronic atrophic gastritis, a withering of the stomach lining, and they don't produce enough hydrochloric acid, which we know you need as one of the first steps to absorb vitamin B12. The other reason for decreased stomach acid is we talked about this briefly with the proton pump inhibitors that physicians prescribe to elderly all the time and for other people for gastric reflux disease, et cetera. And a lot of times they're giving these drugs when people, the signs and symptoms of gastric reflux disease typically is from people that don't have enough stomach acid. So on these drugs, we, we chronically see people are B12 deficient and they're not giving them B12 or testing. If you have H. pylori, which is a bacterium, it competes and it can eat up your B12 stores in your stomach. And a lot of times when people get endoscopies, they check them for that organism. Anybody who's had a gastrectomy because of cancer, ulcer disease, or a gastric bypass for weight loss, those are causes of B12 deficiency. Intestinal resection from cancer or Crohn's disease, you know, they take out when it's really diseased, they'll take out the intestine. You're going to get a B12 deficiency if the ileum is affected. Any kind of malabsorption syndrome, which again is Crohn's disease, even if they didn't do surgery, because that lining, you need the lining to absorb B12 properly. 
people who have celiac disease, which is gluten enteropathy, again, you get malabsorption syndromes, people with chronic pancreatitis, bacterial overgrowth of the small bowel, very common in elderly patients. People who have, these are more rare, but fish tapeworm causes B12 deficiency, alcoholism, and malnutrition, people who just aren't eating enough B12 and eating disorders, bulimia, anorexia. Those people are, get B12 deficiency. The vegetarian community always are at higher risk. Doesn't mean they're going to have it. If they supplement properly, they won't have a problem, but they should always be screened, especially we, can, we have to really make this clear to OBGYNs. If you have a pregnant person in pregnancy, anybody, they should, they should ask these questions, and that's the problem. Nobody's asking. Vegan, vegetarian, they should, every pregnant woman should be screened, but especially vegetarian women because if they breastfeed, they're going to have big problems. Um, advanced liver disease because they can't convert the B12 over to the active form. Then there's other rare things, inborn errors of B12 metabolism, transcobalamin 2 deficiency, and then nitrous oxide. So those are probably, I gave you 10, 11 different causes. So it's not like, you know, one simple thing. What's next for you this year? Oh, let's see. This year, I do have one thing. I'm doing a, the wise tradition from the Weston Price Foundation has asked me to do, to give a, a lecture, an hour lecture at their annual convention. That will be in November. Wonderful. And what we're hoping for is 2012 is going to be the year of B12 awareness where we're really going to try to educate as many you know, people as possible regarding this. And we do have a B12 awareness, and our mission statement is to unmask the epidemic of undiagnosed B12 deficiency through education and advocacy. And our goals, we want to promote early diagnosis and treatment to prevent neurologic injury, disability, poor outcomes, and premature death to educate society on the role B12 deficiency plays in overall health, cognitive decline, and fall-related trauma. And we're trying to enlist the help from the media, Congress, governmental agencies to expose and eliminate billions of wasted healthcare dollars. And we want to protect the public and save lives, promote further research, and Actively, we're working with other countries to create Worldwide B12 Awareness Day. And we have, we have declared September as B12 Awareness Month for the United States. I love it. Right. We're trying to get Congress. I've written to the Surgeon General. We, we believe this is such an important issue. I mean, first and foremost, it's injuring the public. And we are. I mean, as an ER nurse, I'm telling you this. I see B12 deficiency daily walking in, and I have... I do have some physicians that I work with that will test people, and that's how I know the incidence of, of this. We want the Surgeon General to make B12 deficiency a call for action. I know they're working on obesity for the nation and children, and that's important. But when you look at what B12 deficiency does to all ages and the amount of money we are wasting and spending, it's criminal. And, and you know this, the, the, the beauty of it is, there's a solution, and it's cheap, and we will, we will really benefit society and our offspring and our elderly. We need to be advocates for our elders out there. And I, in, in my opinion, this to me is elder abuse. I could walk into any assisted living center, 
any nursing home and find you a B12 deficient patient. Absolutely. The few years that I spent even at one of the best elderly care facilities for Alzheimer's patients, it was clear. Even the food that they eat isn't translating into regular stores of vitamin B12 and the other vitamins that they need. But for sure, I could see that. Well, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show, and I love your enthusiasm and your passion. I also appreciate your optimism, where you could be very negative and you could be very devastated about your findings. I love your passion and the way you're stewarding your discovery, and I want to thank you for being on the show, Sally, and I also want to thank your husband, Jeffrey, for co-writing the book with you and for you both putting yourselves out there. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Sally Patchlock. And you should pick up the book, Could It Be? B12, An Epidemic of Misdiagnosis, the Underground Classic That Has Saved Lives. It's in its second edition. 